This is Macro Horizons, episode 46, Deep Fried Turducken, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of November 25th. As we contemplate new holiday favorites, we're reminded that the only way to improve a duck inside a chicken inside a turkey is to deep fry it. Happy Holidays! The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. So Ian, what's your takeaway from the recent price action? It has been a range-defining period for the Treasury market, and it's difficult to try and spin that as anything more than simply a consolidation as the end of the year comes into focus and the market starts to anticipate what we will see in 2020. After 10-year yields hit 197 a couple weeks ago, we have seen a solid rally that has brought 10-year yields as low as 170, and now we're consolidating closer to 180. Not a particularly compelling directional skew in the market at the moment, even as we continue to think there is a reasonable chance that we see two handle tins by the end of the year. One of the things worth noting in that context is we really are talking about a less than 25 basis point move. So it's important to keep in mind that certainly nothing dramatic in this incremental bearish bias that we're currently holding. The shape of the yield curve continues to be very topical. Two's tins made an attempt to break out steeper, but as with the bounce of the curve, we have seen a reversion into the range. It's difficult to see 14 basis points in twos, tens being easily breached. However, that will be an important support level as we contemplate the final few trading weeks of 2019. There wasn't any nominal supply in this week just past. However, we did see the 10-year tips reopening, which stopped through six-tenths of a basis point. Interpreting the results of tips for the nominal market has always been more of an art than a science, the concept being if there's strong investor demand for inflation protection, doesn't that imply that the market is worried about inflation getting out of the Fed's control? On the margin, we did see an impulse towards higher rates into and out of the auction. However, at the end of the day, we suspect the move had more to do with the ongoing headlines related to the trade war and this broader notion of a consolidation ahead of the holidays. As expectations for the fourth quarter GDP numbers continue to be topical, we'll note that the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now tracker and the New York Fed's Nowcast are currently estimating fourth quarter growth at just four-tenths of a percent. 
that is a pretty big divergence from what we have seen over the course of the last year. And frankly, it's consistent with the notion that the real economy, even domestically, is starting to face some notable headwinds. So there was a bit of a bid this week in the Treasury market. Ian, is it time to give up on our aspirations for two handle tens before next year? I would say not quite yet, although to be fair, certainly conviction is a bit lighter than it was when 10-year yields were at 197, for example. We did see a reasonable, what I would characterize as range-confirming bid rather than a repricing toward lower rates. And with tins between 175 and 185, the notion of a period of consolidation in which a reasonable volume bulge is formed to stage another attempt at two-handle tins certainly resonates to me. However, I will be the first to acknowledge that there is a reasonable amount of event risk between now and the end of the year, the most obvious being the Fed, as well as the on-again, off-again trade war headlines, keeping in mind that December 15th is currently the drop-dead date for the next round of tariffs. Although there was some discussion of that being delayed. Regardless, it will be an interesting holiday season. There's also a fair amount of relevance in the December seasonals as we start to contemplate 2020. Yeah, and just kind of as a brief reminder, something that we've talked a lot about is the tendency for rates to rise into the end of the year, Q4 specifically. And in looking at the breakdown of when those sell-offs actually occur, of the three months in Q4, November is actually the most muted of them. So the price action we've seen so far this month, while on net has been bearish, really we can expect the lion's share of the year-end selling pressure to take place in October, already happened, and in December, which is quickly approaching. In terms of specific numbers around the seasonality, over the past 10 years, there's actually only been three Decembers where rates have ended the month lower than they entered them. And even one of those examples being 2017, which was essentially flat month over month after a pretty substantial sell-off. On the flip side, the sell-offs have been anything but modest, and the other six instances have averaged a 24 basis point rise in yield from the beginning of December to the end of the year. And let us not forget that we also have the December 11th FOMC meeting, which, if the market assumption holds, will contain no rate cut and a shift toward being on hold should be accompanied by a more positive outlook for the U.S. economy. And one thing to keep in mind in the discussion of the seasonal pressures is this year is somewhat different, given the fact that we're not in a hiking cycle. Still, the argument is worth highlighting. But from a monetary policy perspective, 2019 is at least somewhat different. At a certain point, arguably the only thing that really, really matters at the core of it right now for the global macro narrative is the U.S.-China trade negotiations. How that's going seems to dictate day-to-day -day trading much more than data or communications from Fed officials. But what it also means is that current valuations are predicated on the market's calibration of how those negotiations are going. Ian, I thought you brought up a really nice point about that event risk in December. To me, that has two-sided risk. Since President Trump's speech earlier this month, there's been increasing doubt as to if or when that phase one deal comes through. If that did, that certainly would be a pro-growth impulse, higher stocks, higher rates. But I would also point out the flip side of that is if all of a sudden the phase one deal suddenly doesn't occur or maybe it's pushed out into 2020 or beyond, 
that cast out into the current valuations, and that would manifest in tighter financial conditions, lower stocks, and lower rates. And in particular, one of the things that could get exacerbated at this moment is if you look at technicals in the equity market, but in particular, a massive all-time record short position in the VIX, you could see an outsized kind of volatility trade lead to a little bit of a snap lower in rates. Not a base case to be sure, but a bit of a bullish tail risk in the event that the trade war kind of escalates. That's a great segue into what we are actually expecting specifically from the Fed next month. With the assumption of no policy rate change, it will be interesting to see how the language is crafted. And frankly, I'd expect that we will see the introduction of an operative word or two, which at one point would then be removed if and when the Fed needs to act again. What are your thoughts on any of those potential words? The most recent example of their favored phrase was act as appropriate to indicate their cutting bias. So it's not difficult to imagine that something like evaluate, monitor, assess could be their new catchphrase for this on hold period of policy we're entering. The FOMC minutes certainly confirmed that bias. The committee feels like they've calibrated monetary policy to a prudent stance at this point. And even if market-based measures of inflation compensation are running a little bit lower they desire, it's reasonable to expect some lag stimulative impact from the previous cuts. So that perspective of monitoring, assessing, kind of trying to be as patient as they can while figuring out how all of this is going to play out makes sense. And really, that just corresponds to the Fed being on hold for some time, unless there's a material reassessment of the outlook. The question, of course, becomes, what is a material reassessment? You know, We were talking about the trade deal. Well, what if the trade deal is pushed into Q1 2020? Is that a material reassessment? What about Q2? I would say that if another round of tariffs comes in, then we should expect more cuts and more monetary policy accommodation. The trick will be if it's more moderate, trying to figure out does that reach the bar of a material reassessment. One of the things that I have found particularly fascinating about this stage of the trade war is that the conversations have shifted far away from the idea that we would actually get a grand deal that involved true compromise and ultimately redefine the relationship in terms of intellectual property rights, in terms of protected industries between the U.S. and China. And instead, what we're witnessing is that it is actually very difficult for the administration and Beijing to come to terms on an agreement that at least ostensibly they had already made. So the process of putting the language around it might ultimately take more time than even the markets anticipated. I thought trade wars were good and easy to win. Shifting gears slightly, in a conversation with a particularly astute client recently, the question was asked, looking forward through this particular rate cycle, perhaps into the next one, what happens if and when treasury yields ultimately drop into negative territory to corporate bond spreads? Not necessarily our wheelhouse in the traditional sense. However, it is a question that warrants considering. Using the experience of Japan and Europe, it's safe to say that some corporations might actually be in a position to borrow at negative rates. Now, that will not be the norm, at least that's not our base case scenario. Instead, what I would expect to see is a baseline 
widening of corporate spreads once we get to the zero bound, and then we will transition into a more bifurcated market within the credit space. So, for example, firms such as financial institutions that ostensibly would benefit from negative treasury yields would presumably be trading at a tighter spread than companies, think of a utility for example, that needs to simply maintain access to the capital markets to continue rolling over an already significant debt load. Another factor to consider in this context is if the U.S. and global economy slows to such a degree that Treasury yields are in negative territory, then we would expect there will have already been a push to expand the Fed's balance sheet via QE. And at some point, the question then becomes, the Fed's bought a ton of treasuries, the Fed is actively engaged in the mortgage market, why wouldn't they buy corporate bonds? And in the face of that risk, it actually follows intuitively that we might see some of the higher grade corporates trade with negative rates in outright terms. If they actually went into corporate or even potentially muni buying or something, one of the background factors will be how constrained they are by the Federal Reserve Act, which dictates what they can and cannot buy. Of course, you know, you can always change the Federal Reserve Act if you have a compelling enough reason, though that introduces some political risk and drama around the process. I would also say, though, that the conversation about negative rates, while not impossible in the U.S., should quiet down a little bit after the most recent minutes. The FOMC had a big discussion in October about the possibility of leaning on negative rates in the future, and it really didn't seem like it was a positive conversation. They kind of came away with one of those, we think it's a bad idea, we don't think it applies well to the U.S., we'd rather do forward guidance and QE. But in the last sentence, they said, of course, things could change. So. I wouldn't expect negative rates to be the case. If it actually is implemented in the U.S., it would be the committee going negative, kicking and screaming, but never say never. Well, I think more importantly than whether or not the Fed actually follows suit with the ECB and eventually moves into negative rates is how the yield curve and outright rates actually trade. I could easily envision a situation in which the Fed pushes to the effective lower bound, call it 13 basis points, and we see the curve continue to flatten even to the point of inversion. As you've pointed out on several occasions in the past, John, there is a very compelling argument that we're in an environment where not only is there zero term premium, but perhaps because of the Fed's struggles in fighting deflation, we might truly be in a negative term premium world. So if that is the case, why wouldn't we have five, 10, seven-year yields slightly below zero, even if we had confidence that the Fed would never venture into negative territory? It's also important to keep in mind the global context of this. You know, we're talking about Europe and Japan having negative rates. Well, this is in a period of global economic growth. If we actually turn into a synchronized slowdown and say treasury yields even drop to low but positive, what happens to JGBs? What happens to Boons? How much further negative could those go as well? One pessimistic way to think about it is maybe this is about as high as 10 and 30 year JGB yields may go for quite some time. Or optimistic if you're long the JGB market. And in such a world where you have structurally low long end rates, that is incentive for issuers to move further out the duration curve. 
One notable example of such an issuer would be the Treasury Department and a 20-year bond, a.k.a. the millennial. One question we've gotten in the past couple weeks is around the timing of any potential rollout, either 20s or that one-year SOFR floater. In general, it's obviously still a bit fuzzy, but one thing I'd point out is Treasury is well-funded through fiscal 2020, which ends at the end of September, starting in calendar Q4 2020, Q1 2021. That's kind of when we might start to expect a rollout if they deem it worth it. It would correspond well with widening funding needs. Well, I am sure the topic of a one-year sofa floater will be the center of the conversation at the Hill family Thanksgiving. I mean, Thanksgiving dinners always get a little confrontational. The debate about whether you use a compound or simple average rate really just gets everybody going. Now, what about a geometric rate? Like triangles? I was thinking octagons. I hope you two are not the funny ones in your families. No sense of humor was harmed in the making of this podcast. In the week ahead, the holiday shortened trading sessions will really consist of the first three days of the week, then Thanksgiving on Thursday, early close on Friday. And frankly, we expect that the bulk of the market will call it on Wednesday afternoon. That doesn't mean that we won't be without a few tradable events to help further refine the direction of treasury yields. We have a series of auctions, front end weighted to be fair, but still consistent with the idea that we would see a bit of a concession. So adding to our near-term upward bias on rates. Third quarter GDP revisions hold the back page. However, we do get the October personal income and spending figures. These will be very useful as we continue to estimate what the fourth quarter will look like in terms of growth. And more importantly, it really is the make or break season for retailers. And so if we do see a degree of restraint in terms of spending, that does not bode well for the overall direction of the economy. We are reminded of the classic adage, never bet against the American consumer. And so in that context, we actually wouldn't be surprised to see at the end of the day, reasonable sales figures. Not to mention that there is a very high correlation between consumer confidence and spending. And as equities manage to continue setting record highs, some of the asset price inspired euphoria could translate through to a more robust gift giving season. We also have a couple updates from the housing market, the Case-Shiller price index, as well as new home sales. In the context of the broader wealth effect, this represents another important contributor. We are reminded, however, that the core consuming cohort within the U.S. continues to be that 25 to 40-year-old group. And that group over the course of the last 10 years has not had a great deal of beneficial ownership in equities, also not seen a great deal of upside from the housing market, if for no other reason than post-crisis, there was a 10% drop in home ownership rates for those under 35 years of age. So the flip side is with record high student debt growing, auto loans as a percentage of income, and a lack of some of the more positive impacts from monetary policy, i.e. higher asset prices, that core group of consumers might find themselves in a less festive holiday spending mood this year. And with that backdrop and context, our call on the treasury market hasn't changed dramatically. We're still anticipating the 
commencement of the cyclical re-steepening of the curve, although at this point even we've grown tired of waiting. The 10-year yield between 170 and 197 represents an important consolidation point. We will see one of two things. One is we will hold this range until there's a fundamental shift, whether it's on the trade war front, whether it comes in the form of the real economic data, or even potentially changes in labor market conditions. Once we do have a break, we would consider that a go with. So whether that break is toward the upside, call it 2% tens, or there's a potential to retest the 150 range in 10-year yields. The other alternative is we continue to simply consolidate in the range, grinding a bit higher with nothing more than a technical impetus to challenge the high yield marks. In such an event, we would be much quicker to fade any sell-off. And frankly, we would be quicker to fade any rally if it's entirely a technical story. The same holds true for the shape of the yield curve as well. The operative zone at this point is 14 basis points to 27 basis points. And given that momentum and stochastics are now dangerously close to oversold or flat, levels, it follows that we're anticipating a drift steeper in the curve. Again, nothing paradigm shifting, but more of the same in terms of a range consolidation. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as Cyber Monday approaches, we'll be keeping a watchful eye out for any promo codes on replacement bullet resistant Cybertruck windows too soon? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. 
This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and Bemo accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. Bemo assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to Bemo and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. Bemo and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, Bemo's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.